1: This week on The Pet Buzz, we're talking about the dangers of adopting dogs from abroad.
3: Bob Viteri, CEO and president of the American Pet Products Association, is talking about how much Americans spend on their pets.
1: And we're bringing you some Flex Facts, the new weekly segment with our own Dr. Michael Fleck.
3: April is Heartworm Awareness Month and we are talking about protection and prevention for our felines.
1: Good morning, I'm pet Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. You are listening to the Pet Buzz, the ultimate in pet talk radio where we want to help you take better care of your pets. We welcome our listeners who tune in each week from around the world. So doc, let's kick off the show with with some celebrity pet news. Well, I have to tell you, you fictional cats. Are as important plot wise as Church, the fear inducing undead feline who plays a major role in both Stephen King's 1983 novel Pet Cemetery and director Mary Lambert's 1989 adoption of the book. So, when the filmmakers Dennis Widmer and Kevin Kulch were preparing for their new big screen version of the film, the pair thought a lot about who to choose to play church. Well, Weidmer recently said that in Mary Lambert's movie version, they used a British shorthair and that the storyline kind of made it seem like the cat was named Church because of Winston Churchill. Now I was at, don't laugh, but I was in Walmart last night and I found that movie and I saw a picture of that British shorthair. So I'm gonna put that up. Good looking British shorthair. But originally from the original story, the cat was really basic. On the hardcover, the cat was similar to a Maine Coon, but it had like some exotic colors. So that's what the boys went with. They decided to use a cat or cats that looked like the hardcover book. But what they didn't know, finding seven or eight cats that looked like that one cat was really difficult. But how movie magic works is you hire a trainer and then the trainer finds the cats. Okay, so they hired about eight cats and all the lookalike cats had different skills. Some hissed, some jumped, and some just stared. Here's the other thing. Everybody thought all the cats on set had to be divas because when they brought them on set, they had to get acclimated. So they kind of hung out for a while. It was so quiet, no one could believe it because they had to sniff around for a while. They just had to kind of get chill and then they were ready to work. So for Stephen King and the cat fans, the movie claws its way into theaters on April 5th. If you like spooky movies, I'm going to post the trailer because you are going to definitely want to see church and how scary this movie could be. Ooh. I know. Well, I got something else. I got a fascinating story that I think It was a learning experience for me as someone who had a law degree and who practiced law. So a family in Southern California is desperately hoping that their dog will be returned after he was unwillingly taken in an animal shelter and adopted by new owners. It seems like this four-year-old Labrador disappeared a few hours after the owner left for her son's funeral. Now, she left the dog with family members. That dog ran away within nine hours. Can you believe it? I guess they didn't really like those family members. (laughs) Okay, and within a few hours, that shelter even picked up the dog. Well, the dog had no microchip and it had no ID tag. So after holding the dog for three days, that's the legal length of time, the dog was adopted out. Obviously, it was a four-year lab. Great, great looking dog, healthy. So now the owner's in the dilemma. She wants her dog back. Although the shelter had agreed to help her write a letter to the new family, it's the new family that has to decide if they want to give the dog back because they are the ones that hold guardianship over the dog. Now, I was a little perplexed about this. So I went to your school, Dr. Fleck. I went to Michigan State. Yes. You know, they have an animal legal and historical center. So I read up on this and it says... If the pet was adopted from an animal shelter, the owner will probably be unable to get the pet back. And the reason is that the animal control laws allow stray pets to be impounded for a holding period. If it's only a few days, in this case, it was three. The owner doesn't come forward to reclaim that pet. The shelter can either place it for adoption, sell it to a research facility, or put it to sleep. So the only way that animal could come back to someone who adopted it from the pet shelter is to prove that the shelter did not comply with the law okay so perhaps the shelter did not make reasonable effort to locate the owner did not hold the pet for three days or did not have the power to pick up the pet in the first place so i think it's going to be really difficult for this owner to get the pet back i mean she was on tv she was crying she had her grandchildren they were crying she's going to probably have to hire a lawyer and take some action but i also think she was negligent because The dog had no tags, no microchip. I don't know. What do you think? You think she's going to get her dog back?
3: I have totally mixed feelings about the whole issue. It's her pet. It was an incident that was beyond her control that this happened. I know the new people probably are already in love with that pet. They should give it back. I think they should give it back. Do you have a story? I have a real different story here. Authorities say a pet zebra. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that just makes me laugh anyway. Go ahead. A pet zebra escaped from a Florida home. And, and, fl- was
1: sh- and all this crazy stuff always happens in Florida. Go all ahead. Right, let
3: me finish the sentence. Okay. And was shot and killed by its owner who wasn't licensed to own the animal. Okay. This is really bizarre. <laughs> Why wasn't I surprised? Okay. So the news outlet reports that Nassau County Sheriff's Office said that the zebra named Shadow has a name injured itself somehow while escaping Wednesday in the town of Callahan, Callahan, Florida. Mm -hmm. Neighbors said that the zebra did not look injured and was cornered by the owner and killed as authorities were responding to the scene. According to the Florida Fish and Wildlife, the owner of the animal did not have a valid captive wildlife license from the FWC. Zebras are classified class 3 wildlife this is all getting real peculiar to me
1: i know can you imagine that like if we looked out the window and we saw a zebra running by i mean like that's crazy that's what that's what people were saying and they were saying that the zebra didn't even look injured
3: so authorities didn't immediately release the person's identity no other exotic animals were found on the property and the commission is trying to determine how the zebra escaped ffw is still investigating. But I think it is important to tell you all, if you see something, please say something.
1: So call the police if a zebra runs by your window. (laughs) Yeah.
3: There are too many people trying to keep exotic animals, not just in Florida, but in all parts of the country, of Mm -hmm. course. There's an allure, I guess, to owning an exotic animal as a pet, I guess in a world where individuality is desirable obtaining and owning something that is unique and somewhat controversial is coveted that's what i've been depends told depends
1: on depends on your ego i mean that's this, what i mean yeah i mean this zebra was on a huge ranch that was like 700 a cattle ranch with an entertainment center
3: unlicensed
1: unlicensed mm-hmm. what do they need a zebra for
3: yes yeah, that's the hmm So regulations regarding the private ownership of exotic animals, talking about that, vary from state to state with some more lax on laws and penalties. The majority of the exotic pets are purchased as infants. This is another thing that's important about this, but they become adults and sometimes unmanageable and aggressive. So aside from the state regulations, the lack of personnel in place to maybe monitor the wildlife trade which happens to be, believe it or not, it's a multi-billion dollar business in the U.S. alone. Oh, I believe that. Has made it surprisingly easy for the everyday person, everyday person to obtain exotic animals. Because of this oversight, animals are often hidden and smuggled, boy, isn't this a surprise, through customs and across state borders unnoticed. The desire to own exotic animals is often short-lived Yet, it is the exotic animals who suffer in the long run,
1: Just don't like they? Just like this zebra who yeah. was killed.
3: There are over a 1,000 reports of exotic pets escaping their closures at private residences. Over a 1,000 reports. That's
1: unbelievable.
3: Most owners know that reporting these escapes, especially since the they proper have, licensing. They don't have the
1: proper licensing. Yeah, they uh-huh. don't have
3: it. That means that there'll be seizure of that pet. Mm-hmm. Although the fault rests with the owners of the animal, too many unnecessary deaths. Like the zebra. Like the zebra. Both human and animal. Humans have lost their life because of this Especially
1: small children.
3: Have occurred because of this sort of, and let's say it, negligence. Mm -hmm. So if you see an exotic animal in your neighborhood, call your local police or wildlife commission. See something.
1: Say something. And on that note, we're going to take a commercial break and be back with our first guest discussing the dangers of importing from dogs from abroad. Stay tuned.
3: When your doctor recommended omega fatty acids as a daily supplement, he told you that they promoted better heart, brain, skin, joint and immune system health. Well, doesn't it make sense for your pet to have the same health benefits? Epi Pet Whole Fish Treat, an all natural smoked fish supplement, is 100% bioavailable, bringing your pets the nutrients they need to keep them healthy and happy. To order better pet health for your dog or cat, visit www.epi-pet.com.
1: Thank you for joining us this morning on the Pet Buzz. This show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo on Pet Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian, Dr. Michael Fleck. We enjoy being with you each week talking pets. So whether they're dogs from Chernobyl, the Satos dogs from Puerto Rico, dogs rounded up from the Korean meat markets, or dogs from war-torn Afghanistan, Americans are welcoming dogs from around the world into their homes. But are these dogs safe? And how do these adoptions affect adoptable dogs in this country?
3: And joining us today to talk adopting dogs from abroad is Patty Strand, founder and national director of the National Animal Interest Alliance. Patty, thank you for joining us on the Pet Buzz this morning. Thank you for asking me. So before we get started, please tell us about your organization, the National Animal Interest Alliance.
4: The National Animal Interest Alliance was founded about 28 years ago now and it was founded by people who live and work with animals and like, I don't know, 70% of households have some sort of pet but the people that we work with are people who are involved with animals at an even deeper level. They're professionals, veterinarians, hobbyists, rescuers, people who, who have a real lifestyle interest in animals. We came together to help to correct the misinformation that was out there with factual, um, scientifically-based
1: information. Well, you know, talking about facts, Patty, can you tell us how many dogs are imported into the United States each year? And how does that number compare with the number of dogs that are acquired?
4: We need about 8.9 million dogs a year just to replace the ones that pass away every year that are in households. And the number of dogs coming in from abroad now, now this is not necessarily for rescue, but dogs that we know we can track through various means, come into the United States a little bit over a million dogs a year wow. now. Wow. And the problem, as far as this particular issue is concerned, is that most of the laws that we have on the books were created for a time when the dogs that were being transported in in and out of the United States were with their owners, they were pets. And now we have a a huge uh, influx of dogs that are coming in for adoptions in the United States.
3: So where are most of these dogs imported from?
4: Well, to begin with, we were seeing dogs that get the year 2000 through 2005, probably the biggest number were coming in from Puerto Rico and then Mexico. But in more recent years, they've been coming in from the Middle East and from Asia. We have a number of cases of rabies from the Middle East and Asia. A rabbit dog came in from Thailand as well as from the Middle East.
1: Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Patty Strand about the dangers of rehoming dogs in the United States. Patty, can you tell us why it's so dangerous to import dogs from other countries?
4: The United States is just way ahead of most countries, certainly way ahead of developing countries when it comes to the veterinary care that our dogs get. And we have, um, I think it was 2006 or 7 the CDC announced that we had eliminated canine strain rabies in the United States. Many of the countries, it's stunning to me, around the world are dealing with rabies like we did in the United States in the 1800s before Pasteur came along. So you have, for instance, um, there have been three rabid dogs imported f- for rescue From Egypt. Well, if you go to the World Health Organization, they'll tell you that there's 15 million stray dogs in Egypt and that if you're going to visit and you plan to have any interaction with animals, you should get a rabies shot before you go. So this is, um, you know, it's not, it, it should be expected that if we're importing thousands of dogs, tens of thousands of dogs into the United States from developing countries, we're going to be importing diseases along with those dogs And it isn't just rabies and it isn't just, I think there was some canine brucellosis showed up, but there are things that they're carrying, parasites, protozoan kinds of infections and so on that may not be present for months or even years. You have to think maybe in terms of the Native American Indian population and what happened with the various diseases that Europeans brought to the United States, we have a population that doesn't have immunity for many of the diseases, and strains of diseases that are coming in.
1: That's an interesting analogy. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it sure
3: is. And you've really expanded on the health and, and safety concerns of these imported dogs. But is it difficult to obtain information about these dogs?
4: Another loophole, nobody really expected that, uh, first of all, we wouldn't have the problem that we have, and I do view it as a problem. I know that some people view importing dogs from foreign countries uh, strictly from the positive side of saving a life in that foreign country, but we're seeing it from a standpoint of threat to our own dogs and to and to public health here in the United States. And the other problem that we have, in addition to not ex- anticipating that rescues would go abroad to bring in dogs is that we have, for the most part, solved dog overpopulation in most of the United States today. 35 of the 50 states are either in equilibrium, meaning supply and demand are equal, or there's a greater demand than supply. So what's happening is that uh, rescue groups are going abroad to bring in dogs so that they'll have basically inventory to adopt out. And just nobody could anticipate that. That's why the laws are kind of archaic on this particular subject.
1: Yeah, I would think it would be, as we said, as you asked Dr. Fleck, I would think it'd be, you know, based on the fact that our veterinary criteria is much higher than these other countries. Who knows if paperwork coming in, if these dogs are required to get veterinary visits or shots or, you know, vaccinations, who knows if it's, uh, it's legit you know, or who knows where these dogs came from? You just never know. How did they get into the country without health certificates, et cetera? Well, that's what I'm saying. Some of that stuff could be forged.
4: Well, and it was in the case of the 2015 import of a rabid rescue dog from Egypt. Those papers were, were forged. And so a lot of, a lot of things have to be done in order to tighten up this channel of sale. There have been three rabid dogs from Egypt, The last one should be even more frightening to us in terms of our current laws because although the first one was fraudulently brought into the United States, the rescue group that brought in the last one met every requirement that we had, and that means that our requirements are way too weak
1: it's a good point. It's actually a good point. Really so I'm good curious, point. Patty. I mean, we've talked about the health concerns, but let's talk about like socialization. Do you think some of these dogs are suitable or for adoption to for American families? I, I, certainly some of them are, but a great many of them. You know, one of the big selling
4: points for bringing in dogs from South Korea is that we're helping them to get out of the meat market trade, a couple of things on that issue. If they truly are in a kennel situation where they're being raised as livestock, certainly they haven't been socialized. The other piece of that is that more recently, when we first started seeing dogs coming in from South Korea, they were large dogs and it was believable that they were in the meat market industry there. But more recently, many of the dogs that are coming in from South Korea and China are smaller dogs, making you wonder if they are from some kind of commercial breeding operation in South Korea. The other thing is that many of the dogs that come in from Egypt, for instance, and the Middle East, and actually Puerto Rico and uh, many of the other Caribbean islands, are street dogs that have had no socialization I had a state veterinarian tell me that he had a street dog population in his state for the first time in 20 or 30 years because some of these dogs, they're used to being in the streets and they jump their fences to go be with their buddies and uh, live a street life. I guess that's really the sad part for me is we've all worked so hard to develop a healthy I don't know, marketplace for dogs in the United States in terms of uh, hobby breeders do all kinds of things in order to make sure that their dogs are raised right. And in the commercial sector, they have been enormous strides in the last 10 to 15 years, improving the facilities, improving socialization, improving health care and all of that. And so we're bringing dogs in that are not, I mean, they're just not even close to having the quality and the uh, behavior characteristics that we've all worked so hard to develop
1: we have one more minute I know dr. Fleck has a burning question
3: I have a burning questions and I just have burning to Meat market industry I'm sure our American pet owners shudder at that so what if these adoptions don't work out what do they do with them
4: yeah well I tell you you know I have a, a hotline that I've run in Oregon for dog breeders for years for the kennel clubs here and if you went back to the 70s or 80s we heard horrible stories but today, we're hearing from people who have adopted dogs, not only dogs that come from foreign countries, but from bad situations in the United States. And these people, I feel so sorry for them. They are spending thousands and thousands of dollars trying to rehabilitate dogs who just were never socialized in the first place and uh, dogs that are not really suitable to be good pets. So these dogs do wind up being abandoned to other shelters in the United States, and that does, even the importation itself, displaces dogs in rescue and in United States shelters as well as dog breeders at the point of destination.
1: Patty, thank you so much for joining us today, but before you depart, can you be so kind as to give us your website?
4: Sure. There are actually two websites, naiaonline.org. Mm-hmm. And then there's NAIATrust.org, and it is a legislative site. NAIA Trust works with NAIA.
1: That was Patty Strand, founder and national director of the National Animal Interest Alliance, discussing the effects of adopting dogs from abroad. We're going to take a commercial break and be back in a flash talking about the American Pet Products Association National Pet Owner Survey. Guess how much Americans spend on their pets? I want to know. What about you, Dr. Fleck? I sure do. Stay tuned. We're going to find out.
0: Does your pet have dry, flaky, and itchy skin? Do you find yourself visiting the veterinarian repeatedly because Fido or Fluffy has skin allergies or ear infections? EpiPet to the rescue. Developed by a veterinarian, EpiPet is a revolutionary, high-performance skin and ear care product line made with the finest natural ingredients. EpiPet, for you and your pet, means better pet health. For more information, visit epi-pet.com.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to The Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. I'm pet Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. You know, about two weeks ago I came back from Global Pet Expo in Orlando, Florida. Now Global Pet Expo is one of the pet industry's largest annual trade shows. The show is presented by the American Pet Products Association and the Pet Industry Distributors Association. Unfortunately for you guys, the show is not open to the public but you can only imagine how excited I get when I get there and I see the show because the show floor is so huge. Huge! It's like 20 football fields full of pet stuff. So not only can you see any and all products as well as product launches for dogs, cats, birds, small animals, and even horses, there are discussions about pet industry trends, statistics, and, and really other seminars. So
3: joining us today to talk about consumer research and insight into the pet industry is Bob Viteri, President and CEO of the American Pet Products Association.
1: I knew you worked for the Cat Litter Association, (laughs) but I didn't know you made cat litter.
5: Yeah, I worked for uh, Oil Dry Corporation, who packaged Fresh Step and and Johnny Cat and so many uh, other cat litter products. And I learned more about dirt during those four years than I ever thought I would.
3: (laughs) Wow. You learned about the dirt, huh? So, Bob, I understand that you're retiring this year. Oh, my gosh. So then what's next for you?
5: A lot of travel, a whole lot of golf. (laughs) <laughs> and luckily I'm still staying involved a little bit with uh, Habri and with the Pet Leadership Council. Just can't completely walk away. There's Too much good things going on in the pet industry.
1: Yeah, Bob, never. You'll never walk away. <laughs> you will never walk away. <laughs> well, anyway, congratulations. I'm excited for you. But you know, really one of the things I missed when I was down at Global was your update about the National Pet Owner Survey. So, can you tell us a little bit about it and and really who's being surveyed?
5: It's uh, funny cuz this year we Changed uh, uh, the the methodology that we used because we wanted to get absolutely mirroring the current population in in the uh, population that we actually survey. You know, the the main purpose of the of the report is to try to give opinions of pet owners. So we want to make sure we're getting a good cross section of pet owners, but we didn't want it to be you know false representation. So uh, this year we learned a lot, and all six hundred and fifty pages of it will tell you about everything you could possibly imagine uh, with what people are buying for their pets, how they're treating their pets, the medical treatments, the the services they're using, and everything in between.
1: But we have one big question. How much are pet owners spending on their pets? Because that's always like a fun figure that comes from you guys.
5: Our latest figure puts it at just over 72 billion dollars
1: see how bob is so and, casual about the whole thing it's like only 72 billion i mean for me like 72 billion i don't even know if i could spend seventy-two billion.
5: Oh yeah you could yeah i agree with you doc i i know charlotte well enough that wouldn't be an obstacle but we, as, a, as a perspective it's the seventh largest retail segment it's of course it's smaller than food and and automotive but it's bigger than hardware it's bigger than candy it's bigger than the movies uh, it's, it would actually be the 52nd largest country in the world as far as uh, economy goes. So it, it is a significant piece of the, the landscape.
1: You know, that's interesting to think about it. The 56th country.
5: It's
3: amazing.
1: Economically yep. in the world.
5: It's amazing. Yeah. Out of 190 identified countries, uh, the pet industry by itself would be the 52nd largest.
1: Oh, 52nd. Excuse me. Wow. That's great. Okay. Yeah. So
3: so you you discovered some trends and everybody's interested in food and treats?
5: The biggest thing that's happening right now, we've identified that millennials have now become the largest segment of the pet-owning population. Us baby boomers are, you know, we're moving into areas that don't necessarily allow pets and in a lot of cases if our a pet passes, uh, we don't go get another pet or whatever. But millennials are picking up the slack. And because of that, you're starting to see those subtle changes. You know, they, they talk about millennials having practice families with pets. In some cases, they're uh, just to, that's their entire family is, is their pets. So they're looking for things to keep them healthier, to keep them m- more um, able to be, you know, isolated in, in situations where they're still working or to keep them uh, is it, whether they're puppies or they're older or kittens or they're older pets or they're overweight pets or they're any other type of, of specific addressing for it. I think the bottom line I've always given everybody is anything that humans are willing to do for other humans, they're going to be willing to do for their pets.
1: So are we seeing more like non GMO food, like more subscription box food type things made in America treats?
5: Yeah, no, I mean the same way as you're seeing it on the human side, you mm-hmm. know, there little, you know, blurbs of people rushing to, you know, raw foods was was another trend that was happening or, or, you know, non-GMO foods or, or everything. It, you know, it, it, you've got different segments looking for different things, but again, you get the broader cross section and there's still a wide variety. You've got people who are going for only high end foods and then you've got people who can't afford that. So they're going for economy price foods. So you're still going to get that same kind of a breakdown that you get on the human side.
1: Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking about Bob Viteri, the APPA CEO and president about the National Pet Owner Survey. So I'm curious. So let's talk about online purchasing because online purchasing, I think, is pretty hot. So talk a little bit about that in the pet industry as well as subscription services because that's also a big topic these days.
5: You know, it's one of the things that's really causing an interesting battle going on on the retail side. You know, People are going to use Amazon and and Chewy and and places like that. That, Those aren't going to go away. Those are getting increasingly larger portions. What's interesting is the number of people who will go to a grocery store or a pet store to look at things, to see what they like, and then to go back home and buy them from online. So it's creating a situation where the brick-and-mortar stores have got to come up with something more than just showing product. And this is where you're starting to see, uh, especially independent pet stores or other pet stores starting to separate themselves by having people who could answer questions, who are familiar with uh, people's pets and the like. And so, you know, they're able to keep some segment of the economy there. One of the groups that's making a comeback are grocery stores. Uh, People still have to go to grocery stores to buy food for themselves and their families, so you're seeing some grocery stores put almost a pet store within the grocery store, figuring that people who are already here, two-thirds of them, based on our survey, have pets. So let me see if we can't attract them to do some of their pet purchases right here.
1: And, you know, that's an interesting point that you made because that pet aisle is, I remember when it was just really kind of relegated to about five or six foods and then a little heart section. Now it's aisles, right. yep. floor to ceiling <laughs> stacked, right, Dr. Fleck?
3: Yeah, it really is, and, and I've monitored uh, some of those aisles, too, and I can see that there are certain products that are very popular there that may not even be as popular in the pet shops. It's really interesting. So, Absolutely. So talking about pet purchasing outlets, are there some other pet purchasing outlets?
5: I, I went to a, a tire store to get tires for my car, and there, there was a whole section in there of pet products for when your dog is in your car. I don't think there's any place I've walked into in recent memory that didn't have some outlet of pet involved with it. It's just become that important to people to have a pet that you're going to be able to find products for them everywhere. That's amazing.
1: It really is amazing. And you know what I'm waiting for really, because I go to CES every year, Bob, and I'm waiting for the virtual pet store where you could actually snap a picture of your pet and virtually try on clothes.
5: I I wouldn't be surprised, Charlotte. (laughs) I mean, mean, Target's doing it. Creativity is equal to any challenge.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's it's totally cool right now. Bob, thanks so much for being with us, and congratulations. We're so glad that you were able to stop by. But before you leave, can you give us the American Pet Products Association website so that our listeners can learn more, not only about you and the organization, but that survey.
5: Absolutely, the website for APPA is AmericanPetProducts.org. And then there's also GlobalPetExpo.org. Both of them are full of a lot of information for folks.
1: That was Bob Viteri, the CEO and president of the American Pet Products Association. Up next, Flex Facts. Can't wait for that.
2: You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck.
1: I'm petronologist Charlotte Reed.
3: And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck.
1: Here at the Pet Buzz, we're urban, suburban,
6: and country. Welcome to Just the Facts. Just the Facts. Fact or fiction. Just the Facts, ma'am. Your challenge is to separate what is true true, from what is false.
3: It's going to take long. you got the time.
1: And we're bringing you some Flex Facts, the new weekly segment with our own Dr. Michael Fleck. You know, if I find a lump or a bump on my dog can be really scary. Dr. Fleck, can we learn about the types of dog tumors, how to find out which ones are cancerous, and the various treatment options?
3: We sure can. Obviously, you bring them to the veterinarian and you ask the veterinarian what he or she thinks it is. And we look at that and we might have a have an idea that we might think that it's maybe a little fatty tumor or we might think it's a little sebaceous gland cyst or it could be another sort of a growth that's common that isn't necessarily dangerous. But I just have to point out, we don't know.
1: Okay, so I know. I hear you sometimes talk to clients about sebaceous cyst. What's that? Sebaceous
3: cyst or sebaceous gland cyst. Think of your oil glands. That's mm-hmm. what your sebaceous glands are. Okay, So they're normal. But in people, we have sebaceous gland cyst, right? Okay? It's because they become abnormal. the The normal anatomy has changed. And it can be for a variety of reasons. It can be due to trauma, it can be due to the metabolic change within your own body, but it changes from being normal functioning, giving normal amounts of oil to a situation where, it gives excessive amounts of oil, it enlarges, and then it changes its anatomy and sometimes becomes infected.
1: So what does it look like, a skin tag?
3: No, it doesn't look like a skin tag at all. Skin tags are not like? a problem. Okay. Skin tag is just like your skin is just So what does it look
1: up. like, a sebaceous cyst?
3: A sebaceous cyst will look like a big pimple that's opened up. Okay. Big pimple that's opened up with funny material.
1: Okay. Well, the other thing I've heard you talk about is lipoma. Is that how you pronounce it?
3: No, it's a lipoma. A lipoma. Okay.
1: So what is that?
3: That's one of the gross that I can usually, and we as veterinarians can usually diagnose for the person. It's just a benign, and I repeat that, a benign fatty tumor. And we usually find a lot of them on the pet. As the pet ages, just like we age, Mm -hmm. we get little bumps on our skin. They Develop a lot of those lipomas, which generally speaking cause no problem unless they do one of two things. Okay. Number one, they either become very large and cause a, an anatomical problem for the individual getting around, or secondly, if they're located, say, under the armpit okay. and they get, they keep growing and therefore the animal can't move properly. So most of the time they don't need to be removed, but occasionally they do.
1: Okay. So just so I know. Because I think a lot of people have this question when they see them. So how are these lumps and these bumps diagnosed? What do you have to do? Or what does your vet have to do? And that's a
3: great question because when you come in, we don't know what it is. We have to point that out, that we aren't for certain what that is. Okay. So when people are concerned about it and they ask the question, we respond with some degree of, of concern also. But we also have to respond and say, We really can't tell unless we have it diagnosed by Mm -hmm. the laboratory.
1: Okay, so what are the kind of tools that you have
3: to do? So what we may want to do or what we may suggest is Mm -hmm. that uh, uh, some some veterinarians still like to do a fine needle uh, aspirant. They stick a needle in and pull out some of the cells and look under the microscope Mm -hmm. or on a slide and look under the microscope. But that really isn't very effective. Okay. I used to do it all the time. I send samples in. It's just not that good. You need a biopsy. Just like when I went to the, to the dermatologist, they took a little biopsy of my, the growth and then they had it analyzed and they gave me a report. Okay. That would be the first thing that you might want to do. But the problem that we have with pets, differently with people, when they did my little biopsy, they put a little lidocaine around it mm-hmm. and they were able to put a little punch biopsy and didn't feel a thing. But we can't do that with the pets as much. We almost find ourselves in a position, if you want to diagnose it, you need to remove the entire growth anyway, and then have it analyzed because you need to know what it is Mm -hmm. and what kind of care needs to be provided after the removal of that growth, depending upon what it's been identified as.
1: This was really great. I learned a lot. So depending on what it is, then there's various treatment protocols set up, correct?
3: It is. And I, I must really point out again, it's perplexing for the pet owner it's just as perplexing for us because when we're asked the question during the physical exam, whether it's just our wellness exam and we discover it, et cetera, what's important is people want to know, is this going to be bad? Is this a, a skin cancer? Is this going to develop into something more? Sure. And we do too, but we can't diagnose every one. But I think people have to understand that differently than people, we have to use generally
1: scientific measures. Well,
3: we generally have to use general anesthetic rather than local anesthesia to remove these growths because when we use local anesthetic for things, they get so nervous, they get so excited, it's hard on the pet. You sure. know, they're 14, 15 years old. We just, we have to watch this. So I'm saying this with a great, de- obviously in my voice, I'm perplexed because it's just as perplexing for me as it is for that pet, for the owner. pet owner. I'm waiting for a new technique and I just don't know of any yet.
1: Well, if... Any of our listening audience has any questions, they could write to you, a team at the Pet Buzz, or they can contact you on our social media channels. Correct? Please do. Absolutely. Well, stay tuned. We'll be back in a buzzworthy moment with our next guest, who is talking about April as Heartworm Awareness Month. Cat lovers, stay tuned, because this is for you. Warmer temperatures mean more time
0: outside. You have sunscreen for yourself, but what about Fido? According to the American Animal Hospital Association and the American College of Veterinary Dermatology, pets need sunscreen too. Use EpiPet Sun Protector, the only FDA-approved pet sunscreen on short-haired, light-colored, hairless, golden retrievers, and other dogs susceptible to skin cancer. Contained in a sports bottle, EpiPet allows you to turn the bottle upside down, making it easier to spray your dog all over to protect your dog from the sun all day and every
1: day. Visit epi-pet.com. The Dynamic Pet Duo is back at you. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We are giving you some pet buzz to get you and your pets through the week. Well, you know, April is National Heartworm Awareness Month, and Dr. Fleck and I are going to use this opportunity to emphasize the value of heartworm disease detection and prevention with y'all. So we're excited because this week, We're going to talk about cats, and later in the month, we're going to talk about the disease in dogs.
3: And joining us today is Dr. Thomas Nelson, DVM, who is known as a pioneer for his clinical work in the study of heartworm disease in cats. Dr. Nelson has created studies and authored and co-authored several papers on the subject of heartworm disease. He serves on the board of directors of the Heartworm Society, and presently, he is the medical director at the Animal Medical Center of Northeast Alabama. Dr. Nelson, good morning and welcome to the Pet Buzz.
6: Well, good morning to y'all. Happy to be here.
3: Well, let's start right out and let's start talking about what is heartworm disease and how are heartworms and dogs different from cats?
6: Well, that's always a great question because uh, well, I want to emphasize that there is a difference between you know heartworm infection and heartworm disease. Because we often think that we, we get a dog with worm, or a cat with worm, it's an infection, and once the infection is cleared up, it's all over with. And cats are different. Their physiology is different. Their immune system is different. And how they react to heartworms are different. Cats are bit by the same mosquitoes as dogs. They pick up the same infective of larvae as dogs. The difference is, in a dog, once they get the infective larva and it goes through the different molts and enters the vasculature and gets into the pulmonary arteries, They develop into adult worms. And the cat, because of the unique physiology and immune system, when they get into the pulmonary arteries, 99.9% of them die. And when you have a little bitty, you know, two-inch worm that's in the pulmonary artery of a cat and it dies, it's going to cause some inflammation. Wow. So when that inflammation occurs, you're going to get, this cat's going to show some signs of coughing, you're going to take a radiograph, you're going to see a little bronchial infiltrate. And the first thing that comes to somebody's mind if my cat's got asthma or allergic bronchitis, and that's often how it's diagnosed as erroneously.
3: You're you're describing the clinical signs. What makes it so difficult to diagnose?
1: Or is it difficult to diagnose heartwarming cats?
6: Well, when we think about dogs, you know, we take our dogs in, we have them on prevention, and every year we take them in for a heartworm test. And the test that's being run is a test that's looking for a protein that is basically coming from the uterus of the, of the adult female worm. Since the cats, these worms rarely ever make it to adulthood, that test does not pick up 99.9% of heartworm disease in cats. And so we're having to rely on other things. Uh, the other tests that are out there that we're trying to use in a cat is an antibody test. It's just that because of the other factors, there's different antibody tests that are on the market. They're not all the same. Some pick up different proteins and We've been yet to find a test that's consistently able to pick it up in a cat because we may test the cat one week or, and it will be have a positive antibody test. and a month from now, it may be negative or we may be negative this month and a week from now or a month from now, it could be positive. And so it's very, very hard to diagnose a cat because our testing modalities are just not as accurate as what we use in dogs. Sounds
1: challenging, especially for the cat owner. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Dr. Thomas Nelson about the clinical signs of feline heartworm disease. So as you said, Dr. Nelson, the tests aren't always complete. But let's talk a little bit about the heartworms. So are heartworm larvae always developed? Do they always develop into adult worms in the cat?
6: Well, so when we start talking about heartworm larvae, a mosquito transmits an effective larva. Uh, it undergoes a couple of molts. So by around 70 days, this thing is molted to the juvenile or immature worm. And this happens in dogs and cats. Now, even in a dog, not every larva makes it to an adult worm. It's about 50 to 60 percent. In a cat, it's probably, you know, a tenth of a percent that makes it to the adult worm. But there is a large percentage of these worms in the cat that once they get into the cat will develop into that juvenile worm and get into a vessel, but as we mentioned earlier, 99.9% of them will die in the pulmonary artery. And that's where we get a difference. In a dog, when we see heartworm disease, you have a worm that's developed. It starts causing some pulmonary vascular resistance. It leads to right-sided heart failure. In the cat, we do not get cardiovascular signs. What we get in the cat are pulmonary signs. So in the cat, we we call it heartworm associated respiratory disease because it is a lung disease. We see bronchial disease, we see which is you know the airways. We see the lung tissue or, or parenchymal disease. Uh, it's just a different phenomenon. And most people, when they think heartworms, they think of what they see in the dog, and again, it's totally different. And so we have to look at it from a different standpoint.
3: Well, then let's talk about treatment then. Treatment is it different in the cat than it is in the dog?
6: Well, in a dog, so if a dog has a heartworm infection, develops heartworm disease, we have treatments to eliminate those worms. And we can do it quite well and quite safely. Our heartworm treatments in dogs have regressed to the point that we're getting complication rates down to less than ten percent, we're getting mortality rates almost down to zero. So we can really treat a dog successfully. In a cat, on the other hand, uh, we can't use the same drugs, arsenicals, to kill the adult worm. And even, because again, most cats don't get the adult worm. And what they're getting are the immature worms that are causing the disease in, in these vessels and they, in these lung tissue. And since it's so hard to diagnose, uh, what we have to do in a cat, if a cat gets heartworm, is treat the symptoms. So, you know, just like if we have an asthmatic cat, you know, respiratory cat. When, when you think about asthma, asthma is in a cat is the lungs reacting to some inhaled organic material that's causing some inflammation. Well, because the, the cat's physiology is different, they get the same response from organic material that's in the vessels. So those vessels in the lungs with, with these dead and dying heartworms are causing the same type of reaction that you would see in an asthmatic cat. So the treatments are similar in that. Now, if a cat does get an adult worm, since we can't treat the adult worm, we're going to have to do things to try to mitigate what's going to happen when that worm dies because, unfortunately, if a cat gets an adult worm, 20% of those cats are going to die within a two-year period from that worm when it dies. If you know there's adult worm in there, there are some things we can do Uh do. Heartworms do produce certain cytokines which cause some inflammatory conditions and using things that were are called like the anti-leukotrienes, uh, some of these products that people take for asthma like Singulair. If a cat takes that, it can you know decrease the likelihood of having a catastrophic reaction when the worm dies. A uh, high-dose steroid when, it, it, when the worm starts to die, uh, having that on board can make a difference. Now, if a cat has an adult worm, sometimes people think that I can – you know, if I just put the, the animal on, you know, prednisone, a steroid, and they give it like we use for allergies on a low dose, like every other day that where I'm doing some, some good, that in effect really is going to have, not have any help at all when that worm dies. Uh, that die, If a cat is ever diagnosed with, with heartworm, what we tell or what I tell my clients, if this cat starts to show any sign of respiratory complication at all, you know, don't wait to see if he's better in the morning. You need to get that animal and that cat into your, your veterinarian into a emergency clinic immediately because those animals have to get some high steroids and get on oxygen. And we can, you know, 80% of them are going to make it through it and they're, they're going to survive it. And which is, which is the good part. But, you know, it's still a very, very difficult disease to treat the cat, a very, very difficult disease to diagnose the cat. But very fortunately, it's really easy to prevent in a cat.
3: That's my, That would have been my next question. It seems to me as though it's really important for all of our cat owners out there to know that they need to prevent this. Can you talk about that?
6: I would love to. What we are now, all our data is showing, when we start looking at what we're looking at, antigen levels, antibody levels, and what we know about what's happening to the cat, all the data suggests that cats are infected at the same rate as the dog. So if you're living in a part of the country where if your dog's on a heartworm prevention, that 50 60% are going to get heartworm, the same thing's occurring in a cat. It's just a different disease. Now, we know asthma occurs in cats. We know there's allergic bronchitis in cats. But in these highly endemic areas, probably half these cats are being misdiagnosed, and that's actually probably the result of heartworm that are causing this situation. So the the preventions are very similar to what they're using in, in dogs. It's it's one of the lactones all the companies simply make one whether it's an ivermectin base milamycin base moxidectin, selamectin. they all make it out there there's a couple of them that are topical there's a couple of them that are oral you give them monthly like you do to your dog and they have you know they're very very safe products everybody is typically
1: owners don't want to purchase preventative medication because they don't believe that their indoor cat is at the same risk as an outdoor cat. Can you talk to that for a few seconds?
6: When all our studies that have ever been done, when we look at this, and there's a really great study in the Southeast of 215 cats that were presented for coughing, which is the hallmark sign we see in a cat for heartworm. Of those cats that were presented, 21% of these cats, you know, they were antibody positive for heartworm, and 21% were indoor only according to their owner wow so So in other words get your cat on
1: heartworm preventative medications
6: mosquitoes get in the house heartworms have their own air force they can get in your house and those cats are exposed so yeah you cannot get away from it it's out there even inside cats need to be on prevention yes the infection rate's lower but they're still at risk
3: Well. I know this is very important. It's very new to people, but they need to pay attention to this. And so, Dr. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you give us a website where we can learn more about feline heartworm disease?
6: www.heartwormsociety.org. There's information in there. You look under the pet owner's source, and there will give you heartworm basic facts. And there's, there's all kinds of uh, brochures and handouts and things you can print out that will, people can learn about heartworm. For both the pet owner and the veterinarian.
1: Great. Well, everyone, that was Dr. Thomas Nelson, medical director of the Animal Medical Center in Northeast Alabama and a member of the board of the Heartworm Society. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a flash. We're back and you're listening to the Pet Buzz with petrondologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Did you hear it? I did. That's the bell signifying it's time to wrap the show. But before we go, we want to give you a preview for next week's show. Next week,
3: we're talking about pet food
1: safety, pet films, and dog fighting. And Dr. Fleck, can you please thank our guests?
3: Special thanks to our guests, Patty Strand, Bob Viteri, and Dr. Tom Nelson.
1: And we always must thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin, coat, and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere.
3: And if you have a question or comment for us, write us at, team at thepetbuzz.com We'll cover your questions and comment on next week's show
1: and just so you know you can follow along on our social media channels as the show airs we post our thoughts notes and pics so you can have a thoroughly enjoyable experience as you listen to the show and if you missed any portion of this show visit our social media channels and listen to the linked podcast on monday morning
3: most importantly remember we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets
1: peace out and pet love
2: goodbye thank you for listening to this episode of the pet buzz The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed, and Dr. Michael Fleck. Tune in each week for the latest 411 on everything pet related. Visit our website at www.thepetbuzz.com. Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.